Hope everybody's having a good time uh, studying through the book of Nehemiah. Next week, Lord willing, uh, we will we will probably be in chapter eight, and uh, there's a big shift that occurs between where we are now in chapter six, where we're going to be today, and chapter eight, because you're going to see in chapter six what we've been working toward this whole time. This work of God, this process, and what God's doing is about to come to an end. But what you're going to see about God, Brother Brock, is that He's always working. Amen. Amen? And He always has been. And He always will be. Amen? And, and so, he's, uh, he's not done with the work, Brother Bradley. He's just done with that project. You know, it's like at the beginning. You know, God says in six days He created everything, and then it said on the seventh day He rested. Well, He rested from His work of creation. Amen? But He's never not worked. God's always... Jesus said, My Father work and hitherto so do I. You know, when they accused Him of working on the Sabbath. You know, and so, so God's always working, but He's got a, a, a project here that he is, He's initiated, which we'll see is going to come to completion here. So before we get to that, let's go back and review some things about chapter 5. So chapter 5, there were three leadership principles that I gave you toward the end of that uh, message. I just want to review those briefly. And these will come out of verses 15 and 16 here in, um, in chapter, uh, chapter 5. At the end of 15, uh, verse 15, Nehemiah said this. He said, but so did not I. And that is in regard to what had happened before him where the governors had taken advantage of the people and they had been not only receiving payments, but they had been taking liberties and other things that had happened. And uh, he said, so did not I. So the first principle we talked about as far as leadership goes is leading from moral high ground. Leading from a position of integrity and how important that is for those that uh, are, are following us that they can, uh, they can see that in us. And so they could not make accusations against Nehemiah because he was beyond reproach, as the New Testament tells us to be. And then the second principle was in the next few words where it says, because of the fear of God. So Nehemiah's motive was selfless. He did this because he feared God, because it was God's will and it was for God that he did these things. And he didn't take any money. He didn't take any land. He didn't take any personal privileges. And wow, what would that, how much in contrast is that to us in this day? You know, where our leaders, we all feel like they take all those things, don't they? I mean, how does a person go into Congress making two hundred and something thousand dollars a year and be worth nothing, and and thirty years later they're worth a hundred million dollars? You know, hmm. I don't think the math doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> no, we know better. So the third thing is this: perseverance. Because look at the next phrase. It says uh, in verse uh, sixteen, it says, "Yes, also I continued in the work of this." wall. He persevered. And, and so even though there was opposition that's already come, we're going to see more opposition today. There's always opposition to the will of God and to the work of God, but he did not quit. He did not give up. He pressed on. And I'll tell you what, he believed that there was a reward for doing the will of God. Do you? Look at verse 19. It's still the last verse of chapter 5. 
And Nehemiah here praying, and he said, and talking to God, he says, Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Well, I think there's a principle there. I think even in Hebrews chapter 2, I mean Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it says that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So there were some things that were endured. The cross wasn't pleasant, but there was something he was looking forward to. Amen. And certainly I'll challenge the men in here today that, you know what, one of the principles of manhood is being able to look toward a greater reward. Not to give up something for a lesser, temporary, or possibly more immediate reward, but look for the greater reward. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. And um, it talks about that also in Hebrews chapter 6. So let's, let's go and get into chapter uh, 6 now, and, uh, and let's start with verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass, when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall, that there was no breach left therein, though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. And let me say before we go to verse 2, do you know what? Nehemiah identified his enemies, Brother Tucker. He had some enemies because God has enemies. Amen. And he was a man of God doing the work of God. He had some enemies. But Brother Gary, he identified them. It's important for us. Matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, if I'm not mistaken, it says that we're supposed to stand against the wiles of the devil. Right? Well, that means that, one, you've got to know there's a devil. And number two, that word wiles means you need to understand some things about his ways. Right? So you've got to know your enemy, you've got to know some things about your enemy, you've got to know how he works, and you need to be able to identify why some things are happening in your life. And when you do that, it brings about some, some peace. Yes, yes. Amen? I mean, even sometimes some joy. You know, I told Brother Roger about this, I don't think I shared this here, but oh, one of the, those days uh, a couple weeks ago, and I uh, was uh, having one of those experiences you love to have where you just got into a spirit of worship and man I was just giving myself to God and I said Lord I don't want I am so blessed I said Lord you're blessing me so greatly and I said I don't want this joy that I have to be just because of your blessings I want it to be because of who you are and boy, Brother Bradley, when I got to work that day, things just fell apart. I mean, I'm not kidding. It was absolutely the worst day I probably had in a decade. I mean, I got people crying in my file room, and I'm like going, oh my goodness. And then I didn't really, I didn't catch it. I didn't catch it. I didn't see it. And then I went home that night, and then, I mean, this never happens. Me and my wife never have intense times of fellowship, right? But we had one of those that night. And then I got in the bathroom after that, and I was getting ready to, to go to bed, and it, it, got, it hit me. It came to me. And I realized what was happening, and I saw the enemy then, and I just started laughing. I said, glory to God, I just submitted myself to God again, because God, he, he whispered, and he said, what did you say you wanted? Was that the joy you were talking about out there? And I said, oh Lord, please forgive me. I went out and... We kissed and made up, and, we, and God is good. God identify your enemy. 
You think sometimes the person you're having the conflict with is your enemy, but it's not. It's the enemy working inside and around you and using things to put pressure on you. And God's allowing it, by the way, for your good and for your development. That you learn to trust Him in a newer way. And He wants us to certainly love Him beyond just what He does for us. You all agree with that? That's just a byproduct. I mean, God is lovable because of who He is. Amen. So, identify your enemy. And then the Bible says in that verse in Ephesians that we are to stand against the wiles of the devil. Why does it use that word stand? It doesn't say we're supposed to fight against it. It doesn't say we're supposed to attack. We're supposed to stand. You know why? Because we're standing on ground that's already been won by our captain at the cross. See? In Colossians, it says he made a show of them openly. Openly made a show of his enemies. When God raised him from the dead, right there, he showed he had victory over over the death, over hell, over the, the devil. And now we're standing on that ground. All we're supposed to do is hold the ground that we've been given. Amen? And so, if you look at all those weapons, by the way, and this is for free, this ain't even part of the lesson, okay? So, when you get to that, that list of weapons, how many of those are offensive weapons, Brother Stewart? Do you remember? Well, you really can. And that's my point about the sword, because most people say the sword's an offensive weapon, and it is. But it's, all those are defensive weapons. They're all defensive weapons. Amen? And so, yeah, we're to defend the ground that we've been given. Amen? And uh, you certainly, yeah, you can use a sword. That's a good point, brother. Yeah, you one step ahead of me, man. You're just thinking a little higher than I'm able to get to right now. Let's go to verse 2, all right? Look at verse 2. That Sanballat, okay, now this is after he heard, they heard this. He said that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, uh, let us meet together in, in some on of the villages in the plain of Ono, in one of the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me mischief. Well, there's the wiles of the devil. He picked up on it. He said, hey, these guys are my enemies. They're not calling me out for a fellowship and to buy me a meal and to, and to celebrate this great work that God is doing here. He said, they mean me for mischief. Basically, they're setting a trap. You know, that's what I, what I described to you earlier that I fell into was a trap. And I, I guess maybe you, maybe one where somewhere along the way, maybe you've fallen into one too. And if not, well, now you can, you can avoid it maybe from my example, okay? But there are traps that the enemy sets for us. Sometimes there are traps of high-mindedness. Some good things happen. We start thinking it's about us and we accomplish this. Sometimes it's because something we thought was going to happen didn't happen. And we get disappointed and we fall into a trap. We get discouraged about something. Or something comes just out of the blue. We had no idea. And all of a sudden we fall into a trap of beginning to complain or murmur or doubt God or get disagreeable or whatever else might happen. Verse 3. I love it how he overcomes this this, uh, temptation here. And he does it with focus. Look at verse 3. And I sent unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? 
Now, I want you to hold on to that phrase, come down, and we'll get to that a little bit later. But I want to talk about this great work. And I want to ask you something, moms. How do you esteem the work that God's given you to do? Is it a great work? Well, let me tell you, if it's God's work, it's a great work. Amen? Because God is great. It doesn't matter about the size or the magnitude of what you see. It's God's work. And he says, I've got a great work here. So moms, let me just encourage you, first of all, that if you're a housewife, domestic engineer, whatever you want to call it, okay? I mean, if you're a mother, if you're a teacher, if you're a helpmate to your husband, that's a great work. God's called you to it. You should think about that like that. You know, I've been watching... More TV than I do any other time of the year because I've been watching some college basketball. And um, <clears throat> they got these commercials on about the NCA. And they're always showing people that, you know, they were athletes or whatever. And then they went on and they became a president of college or they went and they did this or they were uh, a judge or they did that. And I just wish one time they would just have a woman on there that said, I raised four kids that were good citizens. Amen? I mean, how about that for a work? You know, what you do in your career doesn't tell me anything about what kind of person you are. Yeah, congratulations on one area of your life. Now, let's look at the rest of it. Let's go a little bit deeper and let's see how they did. No, I I remember uh, a number of years ago, there was a university, they were looking for a keynote speaker and uh, somebody there recommended Barbara Bush. And, uh, and then a bunch of liberals, of course, and, and women libbers complained and said that she wasn't qualified because she'd never had a position like, you know, uh, in the workforce or whatever. I was like, well, I don't know about that. But I mean, if you, uh, you were married to a president, raised a president and a couple of governors, I think you probably did something right. I mean, what do you think? Whether you agree with their politics or not, I mean, not many people get to do that, right? Barbara Bush was married to uh, the first Bush, to 41, I guess, or no, I get them all numbers mixed up, and then it was 43, maybe I'm right about that, but her son was a president and a governor, Jeb was a governor, her son was, a, uh, and her husband was a president, I mean, and she's not qualified to give speech to a bunch of uh, 20, 21-year-old uh, people that don't have a clue about nothing. Y- y'all understand what, I'm, what we're getting at here? We're getting at the difference between worldly philosophy, what's important here? focus. He said, I'm doing a great work. I'm not going to waste my time and come down there and talk to you. Number one, I know you're going to try to hurt me. Number two, I'm not going to leave the great work. So the question, ladies, and listen, is what's distracting you from your great work? See, because I mean, you might think it's another work, which is a lesser work. You know, don't leave the great work. Don't leave the will of God to do something lesser, you know, and we do. There are so many distractions around here, so many distractions. And I appreciate those of you and what you do. It's not always, uh, it's not always in the media, of course, but it is certainly on God's uh, radar. He sees it and he knows about it, and uh, I appreciate it. You know, and they say to master a skill takes around 10,000 hours. I did a little bit of math on that. That's about four hours a day, five days a week for ten years. That's a while, right? 
So moms, I mean, you guys are at it about eight hours a day. You can master it faster. You know how to handle the house, how to handle the kids, how to handle the husband. I mean, it's like amazing. No end to what you can do. But what about the men? Men, are you, in a, are you involved in a great work? What about showing up faithfully to your employer or your employment, whatever it may be? Maybe you're the owner and faithfully doing what God's called you to do. Faithfully, day after day. And uh, in serving your boss, if you've got a boss. And if not, serving your employees and your customers. We're all servants. Right. We're serving one way or the other. Right. And, you know, and if you're an employer, you're looking at how can, I, how can I put value into my people here. And if you're an employer, or an employee, you're saying, how can I make my boss better? How can I make him more wealthy? How can I make him more successful? How can I make him more powerful? How can I make him famous? I got a, a friend of mine, a brother Brent might, will know this man, you know, a friend, acquaintance, but uh, his name's Rick Jones and he's in his 80s and he's been extremely successful in, in business and in life and he said his goal right now in his 80s in, his, in business is to make the guy he's working with Famous to make him the most successful at what he does. So his goal is to make his boss better. That's good. That's a good way to show up to work every day. I mean, and, and I think God will bless that. I think God will honor that. Showing up with an attitude of gratitude versus an attitude of entitlement. By the way, the opposite of entitlement is gratitude. Because if you're entitled, that means you think you deserve it. And if you've got an attitude of gratitude, that means you know you didn't deserve it and you're thankful for it. Amen? Totally opposite spectrums. And dads, by the way, when you get home, don't let other distractions come along. you got the murmuring and complaining that goes on at the office, but when you get home, then you got other distractions like the ball game or the, or the fishing trip or the garage, uh, whatever activity you're involved in. Don't let that take you away from the great work that God's given you at the house. Invest our time wisely there. Amen? You know, I gave up years ago. I gave up the game of golf for a number of reasons. Number one, I'm sorry. at it. I'm, I'm terrible. And so I got tired of frustration. I decided, Brother Johnny, take one less thing uh, to frustrate me in my life, okay? I'll still play occasionally with Brother Brent or somebody, but, uh, but other than that, I just I didn't need additional frustration. I had enough already. <laughs> But the other thing is, you know what I found out is that a short game of golf still takes over four hours, okay? So it's like, I just don't have the time for it. Some things have to go, and we're, we're, we're involved in a great work is my point, gentlemen, right? And, and so we don't want to give up something that's greater for something that is lesser. And, you know, when I got married, uh, I like to fish, and I still do, by the way, but my fishing changed. And then my fishing, instead of going with my buddies, which I never did again after I got fishing, you know, we would go and we'd fish and camp out and we'd do all this cool, fun stuff. But I never did that again after I got married because my focus had shifted. But then God gave it all back to me and now I fish with my family, you know, and some friends here at church occasionally. And you know what I noticed is that last year when we went fishing, you know, and God bless us, we caught a lot of fish. I don't remember one of those fish that I caught, but I'll never forget the fish that my grandson caught. 
He's got the about to pull him in the water and he's got this big hybrid on there. I said, man, that is good. Or the one that my um my son's friend Tim went fishing with us and and he's a, he grew up in Japan as a missionary kid, never went fishing. He caught a big fish like that, and I was like, man, that that's good. That's a lot more rewarding. And take that time, take the things that you love, but do them with the people that you love. Invest in them. And man, the rewards are so much greater than they can be any other way. So with all that said, guess what you can expect? If you're involved in a great work of God, is there going to be some opposition or is there going to be some opposition, right? I mean, look at what goes on here. So I want to show you a couple of different things just briefly. We're going to go through these next few verses here. And I'm going to hit a few high points here. So the first thing he does is he sends for him to come down. They send him messengers four times. And then the fifth time, you see in verse 5, he comes with an open letter in his hands. And then they change their tactics. So they try to distract him. And they try to get him to compromise. But he won't do that. So then verse 6, they start to slander him. Look at verse 6. It says, wherein was written. This is in the letter that the guy uh, brought him, the messenger brought him. It says, it is reported. Hmm. You ever heard that before? Oh, so-and-so said. Oh, well, who is so-and-so? Oh, I can't, I can't tell you. You know, I can't disclose my, my sources, right? Well, don't pay no attention to that, okay? Now, he begins to tell him some things here, but he, he knows he, you're going to see that he's alive. But he says, it's reported. It says that you're, you're going to, the Jews are going to rebel. And he says, and you're building this wall so that they can make you king. That's in verse 6. Down in verse 7, it says, as a matter of fact, you, it says you've even appointed prophets to preach of thee in Jerusalem, to build you up. And he, this is all a lie. They're basically accusing his motives, right? And he says, um, he says, you need to come down and talk to us. You need to come down and talk to us. Because he wouldn't come down before. So now they're going to turn up the heat. Verse 8. Then sent I unto him, saying, There is no such thing done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. He says, you just imagined this, invented this out of your own heart. And he says, and here's the reason, verse 9, for they all made us afraid. And then if you look down in verse uh, 13, it says again that I should be afraid. And then down in 14, at the end of that verse, it says, put me in fear. This is always, always the motive of the enemy. To try to make us fearful. Why is that? I think it's because fear is the opposite of faith. I think that, it, what, what does the Bible tell us that we're to fear? Fear God. And then I think somewhere around, I don't know, don't quote me on this, 40 or 60 times it says, fear not in your Bible. And so you know it wouldn't say that that many times unless this was a temptation. So we're to fear God and, and not to be afraid of these other things and, and the, these accusations they're making against them, these slanders they're making against them, because fear equals weakness, and weakness leads to quitting. Faith equals strength, and faith equals and causes action. You see the difference? Because fear paralyzes, but faith empowers us, because now we believe that God, number one, He's in charge, Brother Tucker, 
Number two, Brother Dean, he'll do everything he said he will do. And number three, he'll supply everything that we need to do what he's told us to do. He does. That's just the way God works. I think He's trustworthy. I think we know that He cares about us and He loves us. I mean, He's already sent His Son. What else does He need to do to prove He loves us? He doesn't have to do anything else, does He? And so, they're trying to stir up fear. And how does He handle it? Well, look at verse 9. It says, For they all made us afraid, saying that their hands shall be weakened from the work. That's what they wanted to do, that it, that it be not done. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. He looked to God to strengthen his hands. And that, that means that you're going to have to look to him in faith, right? And believe that he'll do all those things that we talked about. And then there's going to come another temptation here, which you'll see in verse 11. Well, first it's in verse 10. They ask him to come into the temple. So there's an old prophet there, a preacher of some type. And anyway, he says, you know what? You need to come into the temple so you can be protected, so they won't get you, slay you, harm you. I love his response in verse 11. I love his response. Look at verse 11. He says, And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there that being as I am would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Well, I got to thinking about that. What kind of man is Nehemiah? He's a man of faith. He's a man of faith. He believed that God called him to this work and he believed God will see it through. And he believed God would protect him. And so by faith, he says, should a man such as I now, does he have courage? Of course. That's what I first think about. It's like, man, the courage here just drips off the page. But he had courage because he had faith. His, his courage went a little deeper than what he was able to do. It went a little higher than himself. And because of his faith is why he said, I'm not going in. I'm not going to do it. So look at verse 12. When you know what? When you act by faith, God tends to give you light. And he says, And lo, I perceive that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, for Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He perceived that after he said, By faith, I'm not going in. No, I'm going to trust God. And then God showed him, He says, Yeah, these guys are out to get you. They were hired to make you afraid. And they, and they wanted to make him a reproach. It would have taken away. I mean, if he goes, now think about it. If the leader goes into hiding, what are the people going to do? Are they going to continue the work? No. No, they're not going to continue the work. Right? Verse 13. He says there was an, for an evil report that they might reproach me. And then he says in verse 14, he says, My God, think, of, think thou upon Tobiah and Sanballat according to their words. These their words. And on the prophecies, Noadish, and for the rest of the prophets that would have put me in fear. He says, you know what he does here? He trusts God to take care of his enemies. Yeah, yeah. He says, Lord... 
you, you just you know what happened here, Lord. You deal with it. You take care of it. I still remember that story that Brother Alltop told here. Y'all remember about the preacher in the 1700s? Had the farm, he was off preaching. His farm suffering. The neighbor owed him, owed him some, some money. He wouldn't give it to him. So he said, okay, he said, sue me. When he knew he wouldn't, the preacher wouldn't sue him. So, so then he just took it to God. And the next day, he just said, I release you. Remember, wrote him a note and said, okay, you're released of the debt. And he said, wait a minute, hey, I told you I ain't paying that. And he said, you're going to take me to court? He said, I already did take you to court. He said, I took you to court in heaven this morning before God. And God said, he'd take care of me and he'd deal with you later. (laughs) And then, guess what? He loaded up all the stuff he owed him and took it over there to him. You know, it's like, no, I don't want to deal with God later. But that's going to happen whether he knows that or not. I mean, that's the way God, he will judge. And so Nehemiah just says, hey, Lord, would you, you, uh, you think upon them? And then look at verse 15. I want to I focus in. This, this is such an amazing verse right here. So all this has happened, guys. We've been talking about for three weeks all the opposition to the work of God. Every way the devil's tried to come against them. There's been external opposition. There's been internal opposition. They've tried to put the man of God in fear. They've threatened them. They've done everything. Look at the next word in verse 15. So. Had to look that word up to really understand what that word meant. So. You can take it from the context. So the wall was finished. So. That means in spite of, because of. The word actually means, uh, it expresses a connection between, before, to the previous that was stated. To the previous fact. So everything that the enemy tried to do, all that they, uh, th- that they did, the work of God went on. And the work of God was done. It was finished. And how was it finished? I'm going to tell you there were two parts to it. Number one was God's part. And what's God's part? God's part is to initiate it, Brother Johnny. And then once He initiated it, there had to be a man that would do His part. Which was cooperate with God. It was a cooperation. It was a co-op. It was God working through and in a man. Remember, you remember over in chapter 2, they were sad when they saw that a man had come to rebuild the wall. So it's an individual, a person, that cooperated with God. That's how the work of God gets done. Still today, it is God initiating, always, and man cooperating. Just agreeing to, I'll work with God. Anybody here willing to volunteer to work with God? Yeah, just go ahead and raise your hand, okay? And then, guess what? Be ready, because then God will initiate something, and He'll make it known to you. And when He does, you can, you can assume and be assured that that's His invitation for you to get involved in it. Because you remember in chapter 1, Nehemiah was happy doing what he was doing, serving the king, and being faithful to God in Shushan and in the palace, and then all of a sudden, some information came across his desk. And then... He knew that was God's will that that, be, that wall be built. And he said, I'll cooperate with you, God. I'll get involved in what you want to do, what you're doing. I'm available. And sure enough, now here we are in verse 15, and the wall was finished. Glory to God. So what's the work of God that, or the, and the will of God that he, we know that He wants us to be involved in? Well, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he's not willing that any should perish. 
but all come to repentance. Same thing in John chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 16. The reason that he sent forth his son, the reason he gave his son, was that they may not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? So we know that God is involved in this work of, of redeeming the world. He sent his son to do that work. His son paid the way for the work to be done. It's still God's will and work. He's, he's taken the initiative. Now he's looking for people to cooperate with him to accomplish his work. I think we need to be willing to cooperate with God. And that means in prayer and in, in faithfulness. We'll get to some things here in just a second about that, but I want to look at verse 16 because when the work of God is accomplished, boy, oh boy, not everybody's going to be happy about it. And you know what? That makes me happy. Look at this. Look at verse 16. It says, And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. Well, I got to, I got to admit, when the devil and his enemies are cast down, the devil and his allies, I mean, and God's enemies are cast down, I'm happy about that. Verse, the rest of that verse says, For they perceive that this work was wrought of God. Hold your place there and go with me to Acts chapter 5. Well, they were cast down. They were sad because the work of God was accomplished. And more so than that, because they saw that what they were resisting was more than a man named Nehemiah. They were resisting God. Look at verse, uh, you're in Acts chapter 5, verse 35. This is after the disciples have been thrown in jail for preaching and healing. And it says in verse 35, and that this is the, 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 the Pharisees here meeting, and, and this is Gamaliel that's speaking. He says, And Gamaliel said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. Here's why you need to take heed. Look down in verse 38. It says, And now I say unto you, Refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. Verse 39, But if it be of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found to even fight against God. Hmm. If it's a work of God, you won't be resisting that. That's what he's telling them. Then down in verse uh, 42, well, in verse 40, they beat them. So they say, okay, well, all right, we're going to turn them loose. We're going to beat them up real good before we do it. And they did. And then in verse 41, the disciples left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They beat them up and they were glad about it, Brother Tucker. And then, and, and daily in the temple, in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Now, that's after in verse 40, they told them, don't do that. So they said, don't do this, we're going to beat you up. And they said, praise God, you beat us up, now we're going to go do what you said don't do. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 16. Not everybody's going to be happy when the work of God gets done, you know that. That's alright, that's alright. I want to give you some principles to close with today again on leadership. And I want to give you some principles or tactics of the world as well. So number one on leadership. Look at verse uh, 17. It says, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters unto Tobiah 
And the letters of Tobiah came unto them. Verse 18, For there were many in Judah sworn unto him. Let me tell you, the, the enemy, one, one principle of leadership is that you need to be able to have some discernment and to be aware and avoid ungodly connections and relationships. Because the enemy is always looking to infiltrate. And he does. And so you've got to look at this. And so what is Nehemiah? He started getting a little bit more information, started digging a little bit deeper. Why those guys in Judah came up against him back earlier and they were like, hey, you know, we can't go forward. What he found out was there were some mixed marriages there. They'd gotten involved. They'd gotten entangled. And maybe there was a little bit of money and favor that exchanged hands. And now they're connected to the enemy. He brings this out. Principle of leadership is number one, avoid ungodly connections, okay? Whether they be in marriages, certainly, in business, or in church. And don't, if you're in leadership, don't put people that have these, uh, these attachments into positions of leadership. Does that make sense? I mean, how many people, you know... I don't want to get into American politics here, okay? But you know we got a problem when they allow lobbyists to give money to politicians to vote the way they want to vote. We all know that they're, they're, they take that money and they've got strings now attached to it. And they're going to come back and they're going to want their favor in return. See? And once you start giving a person money, then you, they're, they're, they become addicted to it. You know that. And it's like, okay, you're not going to get any more. Okay, well, what do you want? You know, we just give in to it. So, so principle number one is watch out for infiltrations and false motives, false narratives. Look down at verse 19. And they reported his good. They're reporting the good of the enemy here before Nehemiah. It says, and uttered my words to him. Oh, they went and told him what I said. That's not good. And Tobiah sent letters to put me in fear. So, watch out for infiltration. Number The second principle of leadership here in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the rulers of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. So the second principle is that identify good people and put them in positions of authority with some accountability and some responsibility. By the way, kids always want to want to uh, try to act like they're mature, right? They always want to think they're more mature than they are. How do you know when a child or anyone else is becoming mature? When they become responsible. When they can begin to do things on their own, okay, in other words, like if you have a chore that you assign to your child, uh, maybe it's taking out the trash. If you have to come back to them and tell them and ask them about the trash, are they mature? Not, not mature enough yet for another task when they can't do the first task you gave them, right? There's a level of improvement. Same thing in, in for grown-ups, by the way. If a grown-up takes on a responsibility and they don't complete it, are they ready for a bigger responsibility? No. I mean, this is common sense, guys. You have to be able to, to do what you say you can do, and then if you show yourself to be mature and disciplined and you can do that, then you'll get more opportunities, more liberties, more freedoms. I mean, a kid that can't take out the trash without being told, you think he's ready for the car keys? 
You think he's ready for a cell phone? If he can't make up his bed every day, you know, before you know he has to be told to and do his laundry or whatever else, you think he's ready for a cell phone? Is that just me, or does that seem like he's not mature enough? Well, let's don't be uh, let's don't be foolish here. You can put your kids in a situation they're not ready for, and you're gonna wonder why things end up badly. See, how'd that happen? They weren't ready. They weren't mature. Oh, I can tell that's going over real good. All right, don't tell the kids I'm the one that said that when you, if you have to take their phone away from them, okay? I'm mean, just saying. They're saying, when am I getting a cell phone, Daddy? Well, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Has the, has the yard been mowed and weed eaten? And I'm going to have to go out there and look at how you did them beds. And we're going to go around there and say, okay, well, we're making progress on that, okay? Then we can go from there. That's maturity. One thing I love about, you know, Brother Roger mentioned this to me. This is one of the things um, years ago, 20, more than 20 years ago, I asked Brother Roger some things. I said about raising my kids. And he said there were two things that if I could do over again, I would do more of or differently. He said, number one, I'd get my kids involved in music more. And he said, number two, I'd have them have more responsibility like animals or something else that they had to tend to take care of that required time and discipline and things like that. And so I said, okay. Well, we got a lot of animals around our place. And I'll tell you what, I mean, like this morning, there was my granddaughter's running out the house and going over to take care of the pigs or the rabbits or the dogs or whatever she's taking care of. I don't even know. You know, I mean, I don't have to know. That's what they're for. I'm too busy to take care of them. You understand? I've got other things I need to take. Do y'all want me to study my Sunday school lesson or you want me to go take care of the pigs? I mean, it's, just, it's like a no-brainer. I've got to go to the greater work. And they need that work, by the way, too, to develop. And thank God when you've got opportunities like that to give them. You're, you're, you're robbing opportunities in your household if your kids can't prepare a meal if they're old enough. Now, I mean, not all of them can prepare. But even, I'll tell you how young, they can start to clean up the kitchen. This morning, my grandkids unloaded the dishwasher. I didn't do anything except for say, unload the dishwasher. And they're like, uh, that's starting with the key, the chief bottle washer was Wyatt. How old is Wyatt? Nine? He was in charge, okay? And it went all the way down to five. So between nine and five, that's it. And then the older two cleaned up the kitchen. Fixed the meal and cleaned up the kitchen. One of them fixed the meal and the other one cleaned up the kitchen. I mean, I'm too busy. I got eight grandkids in my house this morning. You think I'm going to, I'm, I'm like, no, this ain't going to work. It's <laughs> got to be somebody else doing the work around here. Amen. All right. Well, we won't get to the last thing. We'll, we'll share this next week. But there's some principles and some tactics that the enemy uses. We'll review these, these things here about infiltration, about identifying good help, and then about protecting our investment next week. And then we'll get into chapter eight. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. We've got a bunch of some wild people out there outside the door, so before they crash it, we better pray and let them in. My Father, we thank you for this good day. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you, Lord. Pray that uh, your will be accomplished here today. Pray you use Brother Tucker. Bless him, Lord. Fill him with your spirit, Lord. Speak to us. We need it, Lord. We need you, Father. And we'll give you honor, praise, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.